Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you that you are sovereign. If you're not, we're hopeless. The world's hopeless. Uh, we look at all the situations in the world, Afghanistan, southern border, uh, crises in our own lives. Um, and Lord, our only hope is you. And so remind us that no matter what's going on, the political or military scene or uh, church scene or in our individual lives, nothing unseats you from the throne and nothing happens to us that ha you haven't already allowed to go through your redemptive fingers and that you can redeem and work it for uh, your good and our good and toward your ultimate goal of uh, salvaging not just us, but your entire creation. So we pray, come Lord Jesus. Uh, we're looking forward to that time when there is no more sin or disease or death, tears, pain. But right now, give us the faith we need to navigate this broken world uh, in a, a faithful and loving way. Uh, knowing that you are our companion with a capital C on every step of the journey. And for that, we are grateful. Guide us this morning as we look at this whole issue of grace, your grace poured out upon us. May we all leave here more assured, confident, and encouraged uh, about who you are and who we belong to, uh, because you are our Master and Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've had some people come to me and say, Ron, you know, if I don't believe this stuff that you're up here talking about, do you think I'm not a Christian? I said, no, no, no. I'm, I'm on the advisory, U.S. Advisory Committee of the Lausanne Movement. Some of you may know what that is. Probably most of you don't. Uh, Billy Graham and John Stott started what was called the Lausanne uh, Congress for World Evangelization. They've had three international congresses. The last one was in 2010. I was a delegate to that in Cape Town. 7,000 people, Christians from every stripe there. A small percentage of that 7,000 would be reformed, um, even though the director of the thing was, my friend Doug Birdsall. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm, and I affirm Lassan, uh, not everybody's reformed. But that's, the Bible doesn't say you have to be reformed to be a Christian. You need to surrender your life to Christ. And there are Bible-believing Christians that have done that who would disagree with me on what I'm saying here. What about joining First Presbyterian Church? Do you have to believe all this stuff to be a member? No. The only thing you have to believe to join any Presbyterian Church is Jesus is Lord. To be an officer of this church, you do. Um, we hold officers accountable to the confessions of our church and explicitly to reform theology. Um, well, then why are we even hassling about this? Because I have friends who are just happy with what I call an Apostles' Creed faith. And I am too. That's predominantly the faith I carry with me everywhere. But I really think if, if this truly is God's self-revelation, I mean, it's like if my wife Ann said, Ron, I've written down a whole journal about who I am. I know you're in love with me here. And I never opened it up. Or I never explored it past page two. And just, well, she loves me. That's all I need to know. Um, no, I, I want to look at it. My goal is that we all have a robust faith that takes Scripture seriously and we plow our way through it as much as we can. Um, you know, don't, don't be a Mark, Mark Twain Presbyterian. Somebody asked Mark Twain one time, he was a Presbyterian, Presbyterian. <laughs> I think his wife made him join the church. 
And uh, somebody asked him one time, do you read the Bible? And he said, no. And they said, is that because you can't understand it? He says, no, because I can. And then one time, surprisingly, somebody found W.C. Fields reading scripture. And they said, you're reading scripture? And he says, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> and so, you know, Reformed theology says, no, we don't shy away from scripture. Because we can understand parts of Scripture that we don't like, we tend to shy away. Shouldn't try to shy away. Try to embrace it. And don't look for loopholes. <laughs> uh, they're not there. They're not there. Well, anyway, um, let's talk about irresistible grace, which is the I in TULIP. But I don't want to assume that any of us actually understand what these words mean. The word irresistible in the context of Reformed theology is kind of like total and total depravity. The total doesn't mean everything is evil or we're all evil. Remember, I, I explained that the total means that every facet of our lives is tainted by sin in some way. So it doesn't mean you're all bad. Uh, we're all made in the image of God. And during the fall, when Adam and Eve rebelled, that image was fractured, but it was not destroyed. And no matter how bad a person is, they still are made in the image of God. So irresistible uh, here is used in a, an ultimate way. But um, you and I can resist grace penultimately. I do it all. Every time I sin, I penultimately resist the great of grace of God and turn my back on him. In fact, my, let me just use an example of my own life to show you how you can resist grace. I came to Christ, age 10, at a Billy Graham crusade. It was the real deal. I didn't go there thinking it would be. My parents drugged me. I didn't want to go. And Billy Graham preached one night. And I mean, it was like he was talking to me. And I didn't know what was happening at the time. Looking back, oh, the Holy Spirit was regenerating my heart, lifting the veil from my eyes. And I, when he gave the invitation, I turned to my dad. I was a very introverted kid. And I said, I, I, I need to go down there. And he said, do you want me to go with you? And I said, no, I need to do this. That's very uncharacteristic of me. I, I would have usually said, yeah, Dad, come with me. I said, no, I need to do this on my own. So I walked down the stairs in a baseball stadium. There was a counselor who met me, talked to me, made sure I understood what was going on, and prayed with me to receive Christ. I did the homework for six weeks and sent it back in, and they graded it. And, and I walked solidly with Christ from age 10 to age 14. At age 14, four, I was ne I've never been a non-believer since then, but I went on a 10-year prodigal journey away from Christ. Not because I didn't believe or was having a faith crisis that how do I believe the virgin birth or something. No, it's because I did believe. And they explained clearly to me, the counselor, that if you accept Christ, he becomes Lord of your life. He's your master. At age 14, I was coming of age as a man, and I didn't like the lordship deal. I wanted to be in, I still want to be in control. If, you know that bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot, have you ever seen this? That's what I'd like to put on my car. Uh, that is blasphemy. I saw a bumper sticker that said, if, if God is your co-pilot, move over. <laughs> I didn't want to move over, and so I ran. I ran. I resisted the grace of God. I ran for 10 years. And then a girl in this church I started dating, 
she threw down the gauntlet and said, if we're going to continue to date, you've got to go to this Bible study with me on Friday nights. I resisted that like crazy. Friday night's date night. And I thought, these must be a bunch of losers. I went to the Bible study. There was about 40 people my age. They weren't losers. They were nice people. And uh, a couple of girls I might like to date. Guess who was leading the Bible study? Lewis Abendant. I had met him before. And I was a baseball player at Trinity University. I went to church every Sunday on this prodigal journey, not because I had a commitment to Christ, but because I thought my batting average might drop if I didn't. I'm serious. I'm serious. So I, this new pastor came down here, Lewis. I remember I was the only person under 80 in the sanctuary, so he called me and took me out to lunch one day. So I'd met him before. Then I stopped coming here and went, I'd just go to different churches around town. So I was resisting everything. But in that Bible study, we were doing Philippians, and it's Philippians 4. I didn't want to go. I didn't bring a Bible. I sat there like this. And one night, we were studying Philippians 4, and Lewis laid out this whole thing about Paul's in this Roman prison, and he told us how gross it was, and, you know, rats, and, you know. And the, then the text is, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I, I remember leaving the Bible study that night going, How can this guy, Paul, he's got a death sentence over his head, he's in the squalor of a Roman prison, how can he be joyful? And then I said to myself, Well, you know the answer. And I went home to my apartment on Mulberry and knelt down that night and said, God, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of resisting you. I surrender my life to you. And that was in 1974. And here I am today. So you can resist. In, in fact, I like to use this illustration um, whenever somebody asks me about predestination. Now that's, a, that's subsumed under unconditional election. But a lot of people, you know, they, na they nail us Presbyterians as, well, those are the people who believe in predestination. Actually, Roman Catholics do in their official theology. The Church of England does. We're not, but Calvin was the one who really philosophically kind of explored it and laid it out. And, you know, we got to say there's always mystery. I'm, I'm not giving you the whole loaf theologically because I can't. There's stuff beyond human comprehension. I try to err, as I said before, on the side of the sovereignty of God and on grace. Um, when we get to heaven and we get the whole picture, we're going to go, whoa. <laughs> And some of us are going to go, oh, I can't believe I used to believe that other thing. And um, so we've got to hold with some mystery. And when you come to predestination, um, I remember in Reformed theology class, my first year in seminary with Dr. John Leith, who became my mentor, and he had us reading Calvin's Institutes. And I don't remember the chapter numbers, but one chapter is on the free will of humanity. And the very next chapter is on election. And I remember saying, Dr. Leith, these seem to be contradictory. And I did this a few weeks ago. I drew the, like a wheel with a hub and the spokes. And the hub is Christ and then all the different doctrines. And I remember Leith drew that. And he said, what's missing on this wheel? Somebody said, well, there's no rim on it. See, a Calvin never put a rim. And he left room for mystery. So I want to say that. Um, we try to understand the scriptures as best we can through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, 
not by ourselves, in community with our confessions and with other Christians, and try to keep a teachable spirit. I always say, if you can show me in the Bible that something I believe is not right, I will jump in your camp in, in a second. But here's an illustration I like to use for predestination that, and it's not perfect, no illustration's perfect, but it helps me, I hope it helps you. Uh, I'm not an artist, but this, this is a train, a railroad train, and this is a box car. There's only two cars on this train, the engine and the box car. And there's a track, and God has laid out this track. It's taking you, this is about yours and my life. It's taking our life from wherever we are after the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, and it's heading to a determined destination, predestination. All that means really is that God has assured your salvation before the foundation of the world, that's the pre, and nothing can derail that train. Now, some people think, well, that takes free will out of the picture. No, it doesn't. Now, I hope this doesn't offend you, but here's you and me in this picture. This is a fly, okay? You and me, we're the fly. Now, this train is heading that direction. Is this fly free to fly in the exact opposite direction that the train is going? Can he? Yeah, yeah. The fly can say, the train's heading west. I'm going to fly east. He can do that. In fact, he can go and fly all around the place. Um, up, down, do swirly gigs and everything else. Now, this boxcar, guess what this is? This is grace. I like to think of this as the fact that you, you and I have free will. We live in this world, but we are bounded by God's grace. You and I in Christ cannot get outside the grace of God. When Jesus says, um, in John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. They know my voice. And they follow me. And nothing... <coughs> can snatch them from my hand. Um, that's a verse for comfort and assurance. I use that in the hospital with people dying all the time. Say so you're never not safe because the shepherd never loses one of his sheep. So I hope that's helpful to you. And so this is, Calvin always says, predestination, election, all these doctrines are solely for comfort and assurance, not to get into theological debates about and never to be shared with non-believers because they just can't handle it. This ought to make you sleep better at night. You know, if, if you've surrendered genuinely your life to Christ, nothing's going to derail that train. You belong to God. He never loses one of his sheep. So I hope that's helpful to you. So we can resist, penultimately, the grace of God. But the whole idea of irresistible grace, again, is to be a doctrine of comfort and assurance. That, uh, like Francis Thompson, who was an Englishman, he was a heroin addict, and um, literally almost OD'd in the gutters of London back in the 19th century. But he came to Christ in the gutters, and Christ picked him up, pulled him out of there, and he wrote a famous poem called The Hound of Heaven. And he, described, or he likens Christ to this hound that just pursued him no matter how resistant he was 
Uh, and that's the way it is with us. If it's true that even in your total depravity, you've been unconditionally elected because God loves you and has chosen you, then no matter what prodigal journey you go on, uh, no matter what happens to you, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So it's all about comfort and assurance. Um, and I don't want to assume that we understand what grace means. Anybody want to take a shot at what does grace mean? Anybody? Have you heard any definitions? There's a bunch of famous definitions out there. One's an acrostic. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's, that's a good uh, definition of grace. Anybody heard any others that are good? Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Yeah, meaning you can't earn it. You can't merit. It's not something you can do that God's going to quid pro quo. Oh, look it. He did that, so I'm going to give him uh, eternal life. Yeah, unmerited favor. God's rich. Well, I want you to never think of grace anymore as being a theory or a substance. You know, medieval Roman Catholic theology, really, in some still today, considered grace to be some kind of substance. They actually had debates in the medieval church because, you know, they'd take the, the consecrated host that was not consumed during worship and put it in the sacristy, which is a box on the altar. Now, church mice, they didn't have orkin back in those days, so church mice were exploring and they would smell that host in the box and they would gnaw their way in there and consume the host. So this is serious. Theologians had debates in the medieval church about whether those mice were saved because they ingested this grace. That was the actual transubstantiated body of Christ. I grew up in a Roman Catholic Irish neighborhood back pre-Vatican II. I'd say the majority of the adults in our neighborhood at 6.45 every morning, they were in their cars heading to Mass uh, and going to 7 o'clock Mass. The more you ingested grace, the more likelihood you're going to spend less time in purgatory. So it, don't think of grace as being a substance or a theory. Let me tell you what grace really is. It's not an it, it's a who. It's a person with a capital P. Grace is Jesus Christ. Grace is God's unmerited, I mean, Jesus is God's unmerited favor to you and me. Jesus is God's riches at his own expense, doing for you and me what we could not do for ourselves. So anytime you see the word grace in the Bible, you can sub in Jesus' name which we're going to do in just a minute, is looking at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. By grace you were saved. By Jesus you were saved. Um, and, you know, um, as I say, on all these doctrines, I'm going to try to err toward the sovereignty of God and toward the grace of God. And I understand, when, when I came to Christ, if you had interviewed me at age 10 and said, is this a free will decision you made on your own? I would have said, 
Well, yeah. Is there anything else? There's no other way. And guess what? It was. Nobody put a gun to my head. I went on my free volition and made a decision for Christ. As I got older, though, and as I began to look back to the other side of the cross from whence I had come, I was like, whoa. I could see that throughout my life, God had woven people and events, good, bad, and ugly in my life in such a way that, I mean, I came to the conclusion that I was a goner. <laughs> you know, yes, I made the choice, but you know, I'm, a, I'm a scientist. I was telling my wife on the way down here, you know, science, a true scientist, you just go where the evidence leads you, even if it goes against your preconceived ideas about what you think is orthodox. And it was the same way with theologically for me. My presupposition was I accepted Christ on my own, nobody, and then when I looked, I was, well, the evidence showed God's hand was in this the whole time. And then when I became to understand the Bible and Reformed theology, I realized, well, before the foundation of the world, God had chosen me to be his. Even though I was a totally depraved sinner, the good news is, and I needed a Savior, well, he provided that. And, you know, we, we talked about limited atonement. I was talking to somebody else during the week, and they said, you know, Ron, a better word than limited would be definite atonement. It means the same thing. But the idea that, you know, Christ's crucifixion was a definite event for me. St. Augustine used to say, if you were the only person God ever created, Jesus would have still come and died on the cross for you. It covers everything, all your particularities. And uh, so these are doctrines of comfort and assurance. So grace is primarily a person, not a substance, not a theory, or something like that. Um, and I came to realize when my eyes were open to uh, a, a couple of other very important comforting things. In my first year as an associate pastor here at First Pres, um, I can't remember how it came about, but Ann and I used to go out to Mission Road once a month and lead worship, and Ann was a puppeteer. And, and if you've ever been to Mission Road, some of those folks are very uh, lucid, others not. And I came to a whole new appreciation of the comfort of the Reformed faith. Let's say you have a child, and the child is born brain dead. Is that child hopeless? They can't pray the prayer, they can't choose for Christ, does that mean they're eternally lost? Reformed theology would say, you don't know what's going on. The Holy Spirit, those things aren't a block to the Holy Spirit. Um, let's say you have a child who grows up and is anti-God and then gets in a car wreck and is brain dead. Is that child totally lost for eternity? Not if they were chosen by God before the foundation, but they couldn't accept Christ. No obstacle for the Holy Spirit. People come to me and say, well, what about all the people who have never heard? You know, the natives on the proverbial deserted islands. I say, I don't know. Is it any obstacle for the Holy Spirit? To, he doesn't need missionaries. He doesn't need tracts. He doesn't even need the Bible. 
Who's to say the Holy Spirit doesn't regenerate the hearts of those that God has unconditionally elected? Um, so you can't write off anybody. As I said last week, I go through life assuming everyone I meet is elect. You should never go, oh, that guy's reprobate. Look, he's in the hell's angels. You don't know. You don't know what God's got in store for him. Um, he just may be heading in the wrong direction in the boxcar, but he might be on the Heaven Express. So don't be too hasty. You know, I, one, of things, one of the things that Reformed theology does for me, I'm a scientist. I really uh, spend a lot of time reading in the whole area of Darwinism and how that's falling apart with all the great discoveries we're making with the Hubble telescope and computer models and everything. I mean, you, you cannot any longer as a scientist go with the evidence and wind up with Darwinism. I'm not saying you wind up a believer, but you, you, the best you can do, or the worst you can do, is say, well, I don't know what it is, but it ain't that anymore. And uh, one of the things that Reformed theology corrects, I think, for me, is any kind of spiritual Darwinism. Uh, survival of the fittest. Uh, this idea that, okay, I grew up, I happened to be born in the United States. I didn't pick that. And I was born into a family that was unconditionally loving. I didn't choose that. And I was raised in a church, in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, in a Christ-centered, Bible-believing, missions-driven congregation um, where people really loved on me, Sunday school teachers. I didn't choose any of that. I went to, at that time, the finest public school system in America, Montgomery County, Maryland, outside D.C. Um, I didn't choose that. I, just, I went to the number one ranked academic high school in the nation, Bethesda Chevy Chase High School, the whole time I was there. I didn't help that ranking at all. But I, I didn't choose to go there. But, and then I went to Trinity University on a baseball scholarship. Got a great education there. Got to play ball. Didn't cost me a cent. I didn't choose that. They chose me. And then went to Union Seminary in Richmond, like Chris did back when they still believed in Jesus. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't send a Unitarian there now. It'd mess them up even more. But uh, so I'm the recipient of this great education. So am, am I a Christian because I'm just educated. I figured this out. At age 10, if you'd asked me that, I would say, yeah, I figured this out. I realized Jesus is the way. Well, what about the person born in Bangladesh who doesn't even, who's illiterate? Um, they don't have all these advantages I had. So am I a Christian because I'm stronger and more fit and more educated and that's one way to look at it? I don't want to go down that road. Um, I know friends of mine who are better educated than I am and they're atheists. You know? But uh, so God draws whom he will unconditionally. There's no such thing as spiritual Darwinism. Not in the Bible, anyway. So, if you don't have a Bible, there, I think there are a few left up here. I want us to take a look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I really believe these are the most important verses in Scripture. Every Christian ought to memorize them. And uh, so if you've got your Bible or on your phone, turn to that. And it's very simple. These are the only, only part of the Bible I've ever preached three times. At Highland Park, I did a series of three sermons 
same three verses, three Sundays in a row, because I said, I want you guys to get this. Um, and here's how it reads. This is Paul writing to the early Christians in Ephesus. He says, For by grace you have been saved. Remember, you can plug in Jesus for grace. By Jesus you have been saved. And so one of the cries of the Reformation was sola gratia, by grace alone. Grace is unmerited gift. That means it's something that comes from outside yourself and is given to you not because you earned it, deserve it, or, you know, as a pay for something you've accomplished. It's unmerited. Grace means you get what you don't deserve instead of getting what you do deserve. So we're saved solely by grace through faith. The next cry of the Reformation was sola fides, by faith alone. Now here's where a lot of Christians don't understand what's going on here. We're saved by faith. Yes. Whose faith saves you and me? Most people are like, well, mine. I accepted Christ. Who here in this room has enough faith to accomplish eternal life for yourself? Now, you know the answer is you shouldn't raise your hand and say, I do. When Paul's talking about saved by faith, he's talking about the only faith that you can save you and me is the faith of grace incarnate, Jesus. Jesus is the only one with the perfect, infinite faith. What's faith? A relationship with the Father. The only way you can be saved is have a perfect, infinite relationship with God the Father. That's what Jesus has. But you and I do have faith. And if we had like a faith meter where we could hook everybody up, there would be some people in this room with what we would call, might call mustard seed faith, others that you're ready to go out and preach. Different levels of maturity. But you know what faith does on our part? Faith merely links us to Christ. Faith, you've heard me say this before, is nothing more, nothing less than a personal relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us have a better relationship, deeper relationship, longer relationship with Christ than others. But mustard seed faith is real and true as well. Theologians call this union with Christ. When I, at age 10, accepted Christ, it's like Christ is in this perfect relationship with the Father, and then Christ takes my hand. My faith links me to Christ. But it was Christ taking my hand. Yes, I reached out, but Christ, grace means God makes the first move. That's called provenient grace. So when I look back in my life, I say, oh, God was pursuing me all the time before I ever figured it out and accepted him. So I'm saved by the faith of Jesus Christ. Again, that is for comfort and assurance. I have days where my faith is shaky. I know you don't believe that. Every pastor does. I remember somebody asked Billy Graham one time, do you ever have doubts? He said, well, sure I do. He said, I try to believe my beliefs and doubt my doubts. And I tell myself that all the time. Every once in a while, I have a thought fly to my, through my head as a person with a doctorate in theology. 
what if all this is not true? And I've devoted my whole entire career to some first century myth. Those things fly through my head sometimes. Then I have to go, okay, back to where does the evidence take you? Where does it, it doesn't take me to that. It takes me to Jesus is real and a stark person who bodily rose from the dead. That's the evidence. So I get back on track. Um, but it's Christ's faith that saves me, not mine on my best day. And on my worst day, I'm still in the boxcar. And I may, might be having a real bit. I might do another prodigal journey and I get hit by a car. You can still bury me out of the church because I think I'm still saved. I don't think. I know I am. Um, or, you know, somebody has, gets Alzheimer's and they become a totally different person. Maybe even renounce Christ or something. I would say, you know, you don't know anybody's heart, but I would assume that person made a genuine commitment to Christ. I don't think that gets them out of the boxcar. I don't think they're in Christ's hand. If that was a genuine commitment, we can argue about, well, if it was genuine, never get to that point. But I know people have had Alzheimer's and they're a totally different person. Again, comfort and assurance. I'd rather err on the side of grace and the sovereignty of God. You know, I think it's um, ultimately grace is irresistible because ultimately Jesus is irresistible. Wait a minute, Ron. There are people that resist Jesus all the time. They go to the grave going, no, I'm not going to have you. They're not really resisting. You only resist something you're attracted to. A person that dies outside of the Lord was never attracted to Christ. I love all sports just about, except I've told you before, I don't like horse racing. I don't read that page in the, we don't have one here, but the Dallas Morning News, I never looked that page. I didn't have to resist going out to Lone Star Park and watching the horse races. I didn't have to resist going in there and putting money on certain horses. No, because I was not attracted to that. It was not on my radar. Somebody asked a question here a few weeks ago. You know, I wonder, how do I know for sure that I'm saved? And I said to her, I said, does that bother you? Well, yes. Said, that's a sign you're saved. That's a sign the Holy Spirit's alive and working you. Someone that's not going to wind up in heaven doesn't care. They're not interested in Christ or the things of Christ. So they don't resist Christ. They don't give him the time of day. It's just not, a, it's not something like, oh, I'm going to hold on. I'm not going to go with Christ. So um, nobody really resists. Let me give you an illustration. It's, it's kind of like when I fell in love with Anne. By the way, Anne's name in Hebrew means grace. At, at some point, we can argue who fell in love first. For the sake of the argument, she fell in love with me first. And it was her love for me that elicited from me a love in return. And at some point, um, I hit a place where I could not resist her anymore. Nobody put a gun to my head and said, you have to marry Ann Maxwell. Nobody forced me to. Nobody paid me money to do it. But I couldn't have any more walked away from her and said, well, I'm not going to marry her than to fly to the moon. No illustration's perfect. 
But that helps me understand when Christ chose me in unconditional love, there came a point where I could not resist that love. That elicited a love to me. And it's all about relationship. Suddenly I was drawn into this relationship with Christ. I didn't want to resist. I fell in love with the Savior. Um, let me, uh, and notice this, Paul says, okay, salvation by grace through faith, not of works. Nothing you and I can do to merit, earn, quid pro quo, that kind of thing. Not of works, lest any man should boast. I would love to go to heaven and hear God say, Gosh, Ron, look at all you did. You were a pastor. You did all this stuff. Come on in. You deserve this. That's, I would, that's, Paul, don't you want Christ to say that about you and your ministry? Look at all the people that Paul won to Christ. How he faithfully preached. That's my total depravity says, yes. But that old line from the hymn, nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing. I have no way I can boast. It's sheer total grace. Sheer total Jesus who chose me as his sheep and he will not let me go. The train cannot be derailed. But there's a difference between grace and cheap grace. A lot of people go, oh, I accepted Christ, now I'll go live like hell. I do that sometimes. Every time I sin, I fall back on that. Um, what does Paul say? Where does works figure into the life of a believer? Look what he says. He says, um, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the sign of a, a genuine relationship with Christ is that your life is producing fruit. You're doing good works, not to earn anything, but to say thank you. Because now that's your mission. Now that you've come to Christ, you've been given a mission. And that's to do good. I was talking to a couple of guys for the service. I said, you know, it's funny, I have atheist friends, you know, and they'll come to me and, and I said, well, you know, in the hurricane in Haiti, where were you guys? Where was the atheist over there ministering, and, and they like to take shots at the church. I said, it was the church that planted all the hospitals and universities around the world while they took the gospel. And most of the hospitals and universities in the United States have Christian origin because of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Once you come to Christ, then you don't sit around looking in your belly button anymore or spinning your prayer wheel or running around hoping I say enough prayers that I'll merit my salvation. No, you're sealed. So you can go about the business of life. Milt used to direct Christian assistance ministry. He knows what I'm talking about. That arose out of Bible-believing Christians who said, okay, we're saved, now let's take the love of Christ to the least, the last, and the lost. Let me stop here and see if anyone has any questions or concerns or anything. And next week we'll finish up P with perseverance of the saints, and then the week after that, nothing but questions. So, bring a bunch of questions. Let me have it. I love tough questions. Any questions now about anything we've said today? Hmm?
about that. Thank you. <laughs> but again. Then I'll go, didn't you love it in college when the professor would let you out early? <laughs> That's what I'll do, let you out early. It's funny, I do a Bible study every Friday night with uh, young adults in Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines, Nepal, and some other, a couple other places. And these were all students in, at the University of Jakarta when I was there. I was their pastor. So they're now out into their careers. And... I can't pull questions out of that. <laughs> so I wound up asking most of the questions. And because uh, it's a culture of shame. And they're afraid they're going to ask a question that's to embarrass themselves. So and it's, it's, but it's funny because American students, are, oh, but Asian students, it's just, I got to pull it out of them, pull it out of them. And so it's funny. So I don't want to have to do that with you guys. Come on, somebody's got at least one good question here today. Joe, I know you got a good one back there. I can see it bubbling. So, Sean. Which one is your favorite? I'd go with the first one, Sola Gratia. But that's kind of synonymous with Sola Christus. Say, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas. And... Uh, but grace, I always want to err on the side of grace. That, uh, and thank God he's a God of grace, not of uh, fairness. Fair means you get what you deserve. Grace means we don't get what we deserve, we get what we don't deserve. Hallelujah. Why would you want to resist that? Any other comments or questions? Okay, let me pray and then... And go to worship or go home, wherever you're heading. Lord God, we thank you that you are God of grace. That's the only reason we're here. Uh, that's the only reason we will enjoy eternal life with you forever. We thank you that you've saved us. Saved us for yourself, for eternal life, and saved us for good works. Making a difference in this world and the lives of those who are in need. And we thank you that you've saved us from things, from our own self-destruction, from eternal death, and from separation from you. So we thank you for that union we have in Christ that, that cements our uh, lives to you in this temporal world, but also in the eternal world of your fulfilled kingdom. And it's all of grace, Lord. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And there on Calvary, accomplishing that once for all, sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice that covers all of our total depravity, that immerses us in your unconditional love and keeps us from this day and forevermore. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.